everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hey, Times Will Tell listeners, it's Jessica Steinberg, this week bringing you Jamie Geller, often known as the Jewish Rachel Ray, combining her work as Chief Media and Marketing Officer at global education institution Aish. She's also the founder of the Kosher Network International and a cookbook author. We're talking about her eighth cookbook. The Farmer's Kitchen Cookbook just came out. It's got 50 recipes focused on 10 different vegetables. And really the idea here is marking the Jewish Shemitah or sabbatical year. It's a rest for the land. It started on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year back in September, and generally goes through the following September. Jamie will talk a little bit more about that. And the real interest here are the recipes that Jamie brings us, again, focusing primarily on vegetables. So, Jamie, hello. How are you? Hi, Jessica. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I'm great, and I'm happier like just seeing you. Like I miss you. We haven't seen each other since the world turned upside down, so it means a lot to me to be here together with you today. Just I love seeing you. Same. We. I feel the same way. I get to see you as we're speaking on Zoom, and you get to tell us about your latest project, which clearly, I imagine, was a corona project. Is this true? Was it a coronavirus pandemic project? I guess I was looking for something to do with my life. You know, I wasn't busy enough. Right. But now, you know, the Shemitah year comes around. This is this is the sabbatical year for the land here in Israel. And it comes around once every seven years. And I remember I had just made Aliyah. You and I have been in touch since, you know, that time we worked together on, you know, um, Aliyah and speaking to people about that. And so... Um, I was just like a newbie. I think I'd been here, I guess it was two and a half, two years. And I had been approached because obviously I'm involved in the food space to do something together to support the farmers of Israel. And um, I, I didn't have the chance. I don't know what was going on in my life at that particular time. I was also sort of new to really understanding the the gravity and what it means to to be observing this biblical law here in the land, both as farmers and as consumers. And um and I didn't have that opportunity. So the opportunity rolled around every seven years and here it was again. Um, and uh, I said, please, like, thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to rectify that, you know, that I missed the opportunity la- the last time. And it's been such an unbelievable, rewarding and special and incredible experience. It has made me so connected to Israel and so con- it's so connected to food and so connected to the land and to just growing and, you know, everything I stand for, my family. And like, I just, I love, I love this opportunity. So yeah, it came apart for this year. But you mentioned something from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year to the Jewish New Year. So even though technically you are right, all of the vegetables and the fruits and the produce don't actually go according to the calendar year. So like we'll be going into Hanukkah, almost into the calendar year, the end of 2022 um, with certain produce. So yeah, we're, we've got a, little, a while to go. <laughs> so it's a good point that you're, that you're making. It's true. It's, it's, it's a technical point, but it's actually very relevant in terms of what we're eating here. So now I know that for years now, since you've been living here, which is how long, how long you've been living in Israel? It's going to be 10 years this summer. Wow. Okay. So since you've been living here for the last decade, I know that vegetables were have always been something that you've gotten very excited about, you know, going to the market, going to the shuk. Um, Israel still really has a very seasonal produce 
uh, outlook in a sense. Um, even if you're not someone who only you know, shop seasonally, you can only find melons in the summer. You can only find strawberries in what is the Israeli winter or and into the early spring. Um, apples and pears you're going to find in the fall and the, you know, and the winter and so on and so forth. So this, I imagine, felt like there is the Shemitah, there's the sabbatical, the biblical sabbatical year that felt exciting, but also you've got a real love and affection for vegetables. Right, at like at my deepest a uh, soul level. By the way, you should know that I grew up um, vegan and also the macrobiotic before it was in trend, before it was in season. And so, even though now I will have a little bit of fish or a little bit of meat here and there around the holiday time, I mainly live this type of lifestyle with like a very vegetable based diet. So I adore it and I love it. Um, you and I last the last time we saw each other was in the shuck. So it's like how apropos, you know, that we're talking about this. But we were at a brewery that had meat. Okay. <laughs> Wing wings. We right wings. We were eating, but still, yes. I was there for the holiday party. I brought my team who happens to adore wings. So I'm like, okay, fine. Um, but I just in America or abroad, you know, when I had lived outside of Israel, it's a decision to, you know, eat farm to table or to eat seasonally. In Israel, the decision is made for you. And that changed my life. And it it forces you to actually explore more produce, more vegetables or fruits that you otherwise would not have because your favorites are not always available to you. And you lean on them like a crutch. You lean on them because you love them and you lean on them because you know how to prepare them and they're familiar to you. And the whole world just opened up to me as someone, you know, from the kitchen and the culinary space, like in a different way when I came to Israel. Right. Now, so tell me, how did you actually hone it down to those 10 vegetables? How did you? (sighs) Well, we tried to pick, first of all, somewhat 10 of my favorites, some that are like sort of signature to Israel and some that the farmers that I had actually met were actually growers of these vegetables. Now, we are supporting over 3,500 farmers and farming families this sabbatical year, which represents a $67 million budget, if you can believe it. And I can explain how that's broken down in a minute. But I've gotten to meet like a a number of them. Personally, I traveled north, south and east and west, going to their farms and meeting with them and talking to them prior to the Shemitah year beginning so that I could see what they what they grow and the produce they grow. So a lot of the tips are from the farmers themselves. So it was a combination of those three factors. So do tell us a little bit about that. So talk a little bit about the budget, about how Shemitah affects the farmers in this larger way in Israel in terms of the agricultural industry, in a sense. Sure. So so first of all, the organization that we started for this year is called Support Our Farmers. And it's part of the Shemitah Fund, which has been around for over 50, since the founding of the state of Israel, supporting farmers um, who who keep this biblical law. But Shemitah, we did a little market research, sounds a little bit like Shmata. People didn't know, first of all, they didn't know what it meant. Shmata is a rag. Right. A dirty old rag <laughs> in Yiddish. So for anyone who, know, either people didn't know what it meant, or for those that did, that was the association. So we said, let's use English. So Support Our Farmers is the name of the organization for this year that, you know, but it's part of this fund that's been around, like I said, for almost 100 years. And um, the farmers of Israel are, as you know, with commercial farming, there are still the few farmers there who for generations and generations, they have worked the land. And they've spoken about how challenging it is. Nothing to do with Shemitah. The water bills are through the roof. The government don't provide the same stipends because they are going much more for commercial farming. And the sort of the beauty and the labor and the love and the art of farming is, is dying a slow death. 
And I think that, you know, when people come to Israel and they say things like, a cucumber in Israel doesn't taste like a cucumber anywhere else in the world, or a tomato doesn't taste like a tomato. It's because of literally the love and tear and tears and prayers of the farmers who like, you know, putting into it. And so I feel like we have to, we have to support them no matter what. And we have to support, support that they feed our families. And now this is this year where they are commanded to take a rest from, from farming, from plowing, from sowing, from tending, from everything. Um, it's, it's a biblical commandment. And so it's, I always say it's a mitzvah. It's a commandment for the Jewish people, not just for the farmers. They have to stop farming and we have to help them get through this year. $67 million, by the way is just enough for 51% of the land to remain fallow this year. This is the first time, first time in the history of Shemitah keeping that 50, the majority of the land of Israel will remain fallow, that all the farmers have signed up and that represents 51% of the land. And $67 million is enough to get keep them the lease on the land, to keep them, a lot of them, it's hard to find workers. Because again, it's not such a sexy industry anymore. Their kids are not going into, their kids are going into high tech. You know, it's not like the generations. They actually pay their workers during this year because they don't want to lose their workers. And um, and their tractors, just so that they should just live to fight another day. Farming, people don't farm to get rich. So we're not actually like supporting a lavish lifestyle, but that's what it costs to keep this land, you know, to keep the farmers, let them, let them live to fight another day. Let the sabbatical year happen, essentially. Yes, correct. A way to just, you know, bring awareness. We know people love food and love cooking and love the Israeli kitchen. And so we're like, let's use this as an opportunity to, you know, celebrate the, uh, the vegetables of Israel and their growers. Let's take a break from my conversation with Jamie Geller, talking about her latest cookbook, Farmer's Kitchen Cookbook, which has 50 recipes focused on 10 different vegetables. And it's marking the Jewish Shemitah or sabbatical year. Hi, podcast listeners. The Times of Israel is celebrating a decade this year, and I'm happy to invite you to the second evening of our TOI at 10 live event series. Join us July 6th at Jerusalem's Begin Center for Ancient Jerusalem Revealed, Mythbusting the Holy City's Destructions. The evening features archaeologist Professor Jody Magnus and Dr. Joe Uziel in conversation with me, Amanda Borshel-Dan. We'll discuss how archaeology unveils hidden clues into what actually happened during the destructions of the first and second temples. Did Titus really intend to demolish the second temple? How reliable is the biblical account vis-a-vis the archaeological proof of the Babylonian conquest? The conversations will be accompanied by live music. And if you're in Israel, please join us. If you're not, we'll share a recording after the event exclusively with our TOI community members. For more information and tickets, go to timesofisrael.com slash TOI10. That's timesofisrael.com slash TOI10. I hope to see you there. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. 
And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniel, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back with Jamie Geller. We're talking about her latest cookbook, The Farmer's Kitchen Cookbook, with 50 recipes focused on 10 different vegetables, marking the Jewish Shemitah sabbatical year. And now let's talk about some of those recipes that you have in there. You have some really nice basic ones that you could just make on a regular day. You have some a little more complicated ones. I'm looking at that flower pot salad, which is very, very sweet. (laughs) You've got the sheet pan recipes, which of course is a big trend in food right now. And um, of course, you have many, many meatless vegetable dishes. How did you choose? How did you pick and choose from the from the recipes that you know? How much development did you do of new recipes? Maybe you want to take it from there. Yeah, well, we wanted the book to feel distinctly Israeli and obviously have a lot of that Israeli kitchen vibe to it. So you definitely have those classics, whether it's a tzachina scored with silan and pomegranate or whether you have a sabich, which is, I always say, like everyone knows falafel and shawarma, but guess what? Like sabich is like the national sandwich of Israel. So um, you definitely have a lot of that, but then we also wanted to make sure that we traverse the globe. I think that that's like something people that love to cook love to feel that they can travel without leaving their kitchen. And like, you know what? The power of food and the memories or, or, or the imagery that it evokes. So we definitely wanted, we've got definitely a lot of Asian influence in there Italian recipes, Scandinavian, um, good old American style recipes. So we, we wanted that range. And I think we, we built from the Israeli kitchen and then built from there. Um, we also wanted to introduce creativity with veggies. A lot of us, you know, you and I, Jessica, were talking before about eating healthier, right? But it can feel boring to eat healthy, right? And like eat your fruits and vegetables. And also kids and families. Correct. So how can we make the vegetables more exciting, um, more sexy, more um, inspiring to eat? And I feel like this book is like so inspiring. These 50 recipes, um, just when it comes to like, I can do this with vegetables. Like I could do carrot chips with pomegranate seeds and tahina dip. Like, yay, you know, like, right. so um, I think that that was to inspire myself and others to just like focus back in on the veggies. Right. And then in terms of, you did 50 recipes. So, right, you got 10 vegetables, five recipes per vegetable. Obviously, Jamie Geller, you live here, you're living in Israel, your audience is wide and very much outside of Israel as well. How do you make that balance? You know, here, eggplant, you comment in the beginning of the eggplant section how eggplant became, was just this very available vegetable. So, and there wasn't a lot of money and a lot, not a lot of different foods in those days in the early years of the state. So they did everything they could with eggplant. But eggplant abroad isn't necessarily as available or as obvious a dish as it is here. So I'm curious about how you made those decisions. So when I first moved here uh, 10 years ago, when I started to change the way that we did recipe development, it was very much inspired by where I was. 
you know, a lot of people would say you can't get this here or or you can't do that, you know, like eggplant this many ways. It was like so uninteresting. It wasn't like you said, like a staple the way that it is here. But I think Israeli food has had its moment. And you would know this more than anyone covering culture and arts and food globally. So I think people are in general more open to doing eggplant a hundred ways. <laughs> like I could do a, book, a cookbook on eggplant. And now you can get Ceylon and Tahina like anywhere through Amazon, the best of the best. I mean, I have my own line of Ceylon now that I, you know, I'm putting out. So I think that these things are more available. And I think people are more um, ready to be like experiential in the kitchen and ready to be creative and ready to, they want to and willing to try new things. So I don't think, I didn't think anything, nothing held me back at this point. Um, it was really like, what are the best of the best recipes that would be, like you said, sort of superstars and staples, but also like surprising to people. So I think it's a combination of superstar, staple and surprising. That's what we went for. Okay. And now take it down to the level of your family and your kitchen. What, how old are your kids now and what are they eating from this cookbook? Or what are you making from this cookbook that everyone eats? Okay, so my, my oldest, my oldest is 17 and my youngest is seven. Okay. Three boys, three girls. Um, I actually happen to have like unbelievably healthy eaters, like unbelievably. They adore and love, they will literally chomp on cucumbers and, and carrots and peppers and tomatoes just without a thing. Yes, but. Will they eat carrot chips? Will they eat? Will they? Will they have your different kinds of chips that have pomegranate seeds sprinkled on it? Meaning, I know my kids also eat tomatoes and cucumbers, yes. but they're yes. even chopping it together in a salad with a little bit of lemon juice and olive oil and salt and pepper. They're like, oh, right, come on, yes, guys! I know, right? Is that so? So my kids are used to this okay. kind of food. I, by the way, I don't want to make it seem like I have a perfect house. I have one picky eater. It is so terrible. Basically, peanut butter sandwiches, bagels, and pizza, not even French fries. So forget about carrot chips, <laughs> not even French fries. Okay, it's just, it's such a disaster. Um, but my kids are used to this. And yes, if I do like braised fennel, they will give it a try. Not everyone will love it. Some will, some won't, but they will definitely give it a try. They don't mind to try anything. Um, so I'm just trying to think of like, you know, something else that they love. We have a few chilled soups in here, like a creamy carrot soup. They love a creamy carrot soup with coconut milk. They do. They eat it and they love it. Not everyone, not everyone, but I have more than half will go for the orange soup. I won't call it a creamy coconut carrot. More than half is good. And I think you know this, Jessica, like I'll call it a creamy carrot coconut soup for the cookbook because that sounds much better than orange soup. But in Israel, on every menu, they just call it orange soup. It's like so crazy. And I think they just like reserve that, right? Because maybe it will be sweet potato today. Maybe it will be pumpkin and maybe it will be carrots. It's whatever they have. They're just leaving the options open. But I have half that will go for orange <laughs> soup instead of the chicken soup. So that's the that's the win. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Now, talk to me a little bit about in terms of that you're you're here You've, you know, you've got your audience in the States and I imagine in other countries as well. You've got your audience here. But how Israeli are you at this point in that sense, in terms of your cookbook, in terms of your recipes, in terms of how you think about what works here, what works there? It's, it's, I mean, I know I speak to a lot of different cookbook authors and to a lot of different chefs who, you know, are constantly flying between the different places and not everything works everywhere. But at the same time, as you pointed out, Israeli food, you know, Israeli culinary style is what where it's at right now. And it has been for a while. 
But how are you looking at all of this now, as we said, 10 years in? I don't feel so Israeli. I think that like for Americans here, especially Americans that like sort of settle in very Anglo areas, um, I don't feel Israeli. Um, and I'm sure I'm somewhere in between. The Israelis for sure don't think I'm an Israeli and the Americans definitely see that I'm not totally like American. So I'm in this like gray zone. And I think I always like think like that. I think it's a bit of a global view on things. You know, I try not to lean in too much um, to things that are just, like I said, only available here. And even though I would be hard pressed to think about what I, what's available here that I would be introducing to the world that hasn't been introduced yet with the unbelievable Israeli chefs that are doing unbelievable things all over the world, including even the Midwest and in the South of America. It's like in the South in Atlanta, like it's unbelievable, you know, and they're, they're naming their restaurants like Hebrew and Yiddish words. <laughs> like it's the craziest thing. Like yeah. I would have like, if you think like I'd ever put out a cookbook, like called Balabusta, but look at Aynat, she went ahead and did the restaurant cookbook and everything. And she's unbelievable. So, um, so I don't think that like I'm doing anything that's a, too scary for people, right? We spoke about staples, surprising, but not scary. But on the other hand, what you I think what you can bring, and I think we also we see this with other with other American-born chefs in Israel or Israeli-born chefs in America, for instance, that you do bring. I think what happens is you bring an understanding of what runs there, what happens there, and what happens here. I mean, for instance, going back to the farmers, you went out. You met the farmers. What language did you speak in with them? Hebrew. Hebrew. Except for a few that were, a few of them are Americans. Really? That were other Olim just like me. Yeah. Now, of course, one made Aliyah 40 years ago. One made Aliyah 15 years ago. But yeah, but otherwise majority Hebrew. So they yeah. had, okay. So you had, you had immigrant farmers, which is pretty interesting. Okay. Did you seek them out especially for this? So it's interesting. We made videos that we wanted. And I did look for some farmers that could speak English. So one of them was, uh, she was born here, but she was the daughter of Americans. So her English was amazing. And her husband was from Muncie, who I had met 10 years ago at Kosher Fest. And I didn't even realize. Another one, um, they were new Olim. They've been here 15 years. And there always was their dream to grow like organic herbs. They have a small organic herb farm. Um, another one, she, 40 years ago, she came, she's married to an Israeli. He does not know a word of English. And she just became this Israeli really farmer with him and he's generations of farmers. So it's like everyone is another story. Um, but yeah, I, did, I sought out some that spoke English. That was the goal. So it's definitely not the majority. So the book is out and, you know, everyone's going to start, you know, people are going to start cooking with it. And you've, I mean, you right. And you, <laughs> and you set out to do this Shemitah sabbatical year focused and uh, cookbook for this, par- for this particular period of time. And you did it. And and as you pointed out, actually, Shemitah kind of lasts past the Jewish New Year, past Rosh Hashanah, into the fall, into, you know, even December. But when you look at, when you look at it a little bit more globally at how it works, how the sabbatical year works for the land here, are there sort of messages that you come away with? Are there thoughts that you come away with for how it works and, and maybe to look at it differently, you know, next time it comes around, which is in seven years from now? I don't, whether it's from the point of view of the consumer, the farmer, are there things that you, Jamie Geller, looks at from this experience and says, hmm, maybe it would be interesting to think about it this way? You know, we started working on the book six months ago. And it was like a rush job because we had like a year basically. <laughs> and we thought it we thought it would take two to three months and it ended up taking six months. 
And I feel like I'm just running out of time. I feel like I'm running out of time to tell people the story mm. of what's happening here in the land. So I would definitely start earlier next year. I don't know why we all woke up like Rosh Hashanah. I mean, we started two months before Rosh Hashanah in the summer going to visit the farmers. Like, we all know it's coming. It's on the calendar. Right. Like, <laughs> so now I'm going to be one of those people that says, we need to start a little bit earlier. $67 million ain't so easy, you know, to raise. And by the way, there are many people raising all over the world for this. Um, just with supportourfarmers.org, we raised $300,000, which I'm pleased with. But, you know, I thought and hoped and dreamed still that we'll get to a million dollars to do our part. Uh, and we're raising from a, you know, a consumer base that doesn't know what Shemitah is. There's so much education. So I'm hoping that this book will have the legs for the next seven years. People will buy it because they love the idea of the Israeli kitchen and the farmer's kitchen and and produce from Israel and how they can be creative with that, which is a, really the same produce. we Again, we used fennel, leeks, cabbage, carrots, beets, things that are available everywhere, you know? Sure. Um, and that that will help tell the story throughout over the next seven years so that we're not sort of starting from, from scratch. So that's what I'm just thinking about. Like, how do we help? How do we move this movement forward? How do we support our farmers? Um, so I would start earlier. <laughs> okay. And then of course, and by then people will really have gotten used to fennel, which I was pleased and surprised to see that you started the cookbook with fennel, which is a scary vegetable sometimes for people. It can be scary. Don't, uh, you know, it does not have that strong black licorice taste, which people are scared of. It's delicate. It can be braised. It can be roasted. It can be pureed. A fennel soup is like divine. We have roasted fennel with quinoa. We have an unbelievable spatchcock splayed chicken dish with fennel. I think that you're going to love it. You just have to give it a try. It's kind of like you came for the cabbage, maybe but you'll stay for the fennel. Like, I don't know what brought you in, whether it was- I like, like that. The beets, don't be scared. They're beautiful like that. You know, I think that we did some safe things and some things that will just get you out of your comfort zone a bit. All right, people, you heard it from Jamie Geller, Farmer's Kitchen Cookbook. You came for the cabbage, you stayed for the fennel. We're gonna, we might have to lead with that, Jamie. We thank you so <laughs> much for being with us on this episode of Times Will Tell. Oh, thank you, Jessica, so much. Yeah, you can't top that. All right. Happy cooking, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.